This episode is supported by provider solutions and development expert recruitment advisors helping physicians navigate their next career move. Reach out at info.psdconnect.org forward slash curbsiders. The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. All right, welcome back to the Curbsiders. Um, as longtime listeners know, one of my favorite things in the entire world is watching Matt Watto work up the right amount of energy to actually introduce the podcast. But sadly, he is not here. Um, but happily, we, we have someone just as good, if not better. Well, so we'll say better. I'm going to feel fairly aggressive about that. I am joined today by Dr. Molly Hoyblein. Molly, how are you? I am doing great. Thank you, Paul. We are here at ACP in Chicago. Uh, and we have just had the good fortune to be joined by Ted Parks, who you all know and love at this point. Um, but before we get to that, Molly, will you remind us what we do on this show? Sure, Paul. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. We had a great conversation with Dr. Ted Parks. As you know, he's an orthopedic surgeon with a specialty in sports medicine, joint replacement, and reconstruction arthroscopy in Denver, Colorado. He is also author of the book Practical Office Orthopedics, which is tremendous. Uh, in this episode, Dr. Parks talks us through hand and wrist pain, which is the subject of the episode, um, so that works out great. We specifically talk about the approach to pain at the base of the thumb, so things like, is this decurvain sinusinovitis versus uh, CMC arthritis? We talk about that old standby carpal tunnel syndrome, and we talk a little bit about the approach to diagnosing and managing trigger finger. Um, so unless someone has some spectacular pun, why don't we get to the episode? And I'll just pause to wait to see if Molly has anything for us. I'm Googling it real quick. <laughs> <laughs> but no. <laughs> Ted, welcome back. It's great to see you again. This is, what, our fourth recording? I think this is number four. Yes. Congratulations. Four times a charm. You get the smoking jacket next time around. <laughs> Fantastic. So I, I guess we'll start out with some of the icebreaker questions. You have a number of fascinating hobbies that we've talked about before. Have you picked up any new or interesting hobbies um, <laughs> during COVID or are you still just um, building cars and designing video games? Uh, pretty much just building cars, designing video games. I had an old hobby that I resurrected during COVID. Uh, COVID really slowed our office down, so I had time to do things I hadn't done for a long time. And at one point in my life, I wanted really badly to be a portrait artist, and I did uh, some portrait painting. And uh, I got a chance to do another one of those, uh, uh, which it takes me forever to do, so I had the time finally to do it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I worked on that hobby a little bit. But uh, other than that, I can't think of anything new and exciting. Or That's, even just new? That, no, that qualifies. So who's, what is the last thing, what is the last portrait that you've painted? Are we talking pets, family members? Uh, it's family, family members. I don't know. I guess I, I could show you. Uh, it's, it's something that would be easier to, to see than to hear about. But it was a, paint, a picture I took on my phone of my wife, actually, uh, that reminded me of a portrait by one of my favorite artists, a guy named John Singer Sargent. And so I always, I kept that in my phone, you know, wanting it someday to make it into a portrait. And uh, that, that uh, pandemic gave me the opportunity to do that. So there's the portrait there. That's the portrait? Yeah, the photograph <laughs> is that. And, uh, the Who are you? Let me you, can, uh, <laughs> you can warm it up. So uh, 
So that's the portrait, yeah. Just for the, the, the listeners at home, this is like a photorealistic thing. <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot with you. This is unbelievable. Uh, oh, thanks. That's, that's, that is beautiful. And thanks. it's gorgeous. Wow. And uh, if it were a, son, a singer sergeant, she'd be holding a book, but she's got her phone, which is a really cool <laughs> timestamp because yeah. phone, by now that's all you can tell if you look closely at it. It's, it's an obsolete phone that's clearly from a couple years ago. So it's, I, I really like the, having the phone in there to, to sort of index what time this was, uh, was done. God, it's incredible. Wow. I think we have asked you most of our regular questions. So what I'm mm-hmm. curious about is, can you think of something in the last few years that has changed in your clinical practice or something that you've changed in kind of your teaching techniques, something that you're working on? Yeah, I really am trying to be more open-minded. Um, I think in my practice, for sure, I'm always trying to do too much in too little time. And so I'm mentally trying to make things more efficient and take shortcuts and usually it backfires, and the shortcut actually makes me end up putting more time into something because I missed something I should have missed. So I'm really trying to uh, to be more, keep my eyes open more, and not just put my nose to the grindstone so much. Excellent advice. Our sponsor for this episode is Panacea Financial, the national bank for doctors by doctors. And as a doctor, I know that the average bank, it's just not built for our community because they see our debt levels or our limited credit history. And they say, these are red flags. But at Panacea, they get it because they have lived it. And they are a bank founded by two physicians. So they're dedicated to providing solutions for the unique needs of doctors and doctors in training in their PRN personal loan. So let me tell you about it. Let's say you're moving for residency or fellowship or even just becoming an attending and you want to cover some costs, you want to avoid credit card debt, or maybe you want to refinance existing or expensive credit card debt. Check out their PRN personal loan because it offers a period of no or very low affordable payments, no cosigner requirement, low fixed interest rates that don't depend on your credit score. So join the growing number of doctors nationwide that expect more from their bank and have switched to Panacea Financial. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to learn how a bank for doctors by doctors can help you. Panacea Financial is a division of Premise, member, FDIC. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Let's face it, everybody, you know, life can be overwhelming and we can get burned out sometimes. I've talked about this on the show before. I'm a big fan of BetterHelp. I was using the service even before they were a sponsor on the show because I feel it's important to take care of our own mental health and I was happy to see BetterHelp existed because there was so many barriers to getting into care. There was the stigma of going into an office. You didn't want other people to know about it. Well, BetterHelp lowers the bar. You can do this right from the comfort of your own home. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Curbsiders listeners right now can get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash curb. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash curb. We want you to take care of yourself, so stop making excuses and get yourself into care today. All right, well, with that, why don't we roll into some cases? Right, we have a bunch to talk about. We're focusing on the hand and wrist today. So I'm going to tell you about our first patient. She might be our only patient, if actually, if memory serves. This is Ms. Kate O'Hare. She's a 50-year-old woman. She has a past medical history of high blood pressure and hyperlipidemia. She's coming to your office for the evaluation of right wrist pain. Uh, Ms. O'Hare has been working on the production line of a pretzel factory for years. I'm just trying to keep this Philly-centric. 
And over the past few months, she's begun to experience pain at the base of her right thumb. She noticed this is mostly when cutting the pretzel dough, which she does with a knife in her right hand. She is right hand dominant. She denies specific antecedent trauma or injury. The pain has not improved with acetaminophen, shockingly, and she's not tried anything else for her symptoms. So I think before we get even too deep into Ms. O'Hara's specific case, I just wonder, I feel like you always have these amazing frameworks for sort of um, regional approaches to the body. So when someone comes to you with hand and wrist pain, do you have sort of a just general overall approach before we kind of get into the nitty gritty? Yeah. Uh, I, the first thing I'll try to do is just separate trauma from non-trauma. And uh, she would land in the non-trauma bucket. Uh, so that excludes worries about things like a scaphoid fracture, uh, these uh, things that can be broken or torn in the hand or wrist. So I'm going to eliminate all of those, and now I'm going to concentrate on her on just the atraumatic sources of hand and wrist pain. And you can even divide those up into ones that are the result of nerve compression, like carpal tunnel, ones that are a result of wear and tear of joints, and ones that are a result of tendonitis. So those are the three sort of sub-buckets. And uh, right now, I'm not sure which of, it sounds like she's not going to have a nerve impingement problem because she's, her chief complaint isn't numbness and tingling. So now we've got her narrowed down to two of the sub-buckets. I'm not yet sure whether she's in the uh, arthritis bucket, uh, joint wear and tear, or she's in the tendonitis bucket. Excellent. And for those of us who have forgotten most of the anatomy uh, that we learned in medical school, what are kind of the key anatomic structures and landmarks that a primary care provider should know when evaluating the hand and wrist? I don't think there are any. I mean, you have to be able <laughs> yes, to... I like I, it. There's a thumb. <laughs> you, you, I, we spent so much time in my medical training on the snuff box. I mean, the snuff box, you would think it was like more important than the heart. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's kind of absurd, really. Uh, I think if you can identify which of the digits is the thumb, it's the shorter, kind of chubbier one, you, that's all you need to do. That's like all it. the anatomic sophistication you need to figure this stuff out. And you mentioned, so we're, we're at this point now where you're, you're starting narrowing things down. So historically, I guess, why don't we start with history first, um, since we're internists here. What, what would point you more in one direction than the other? What kind of questions are important to ask when you have a patient who's coming into you with, um, at least to you, new pain, but someone who's maybe presenting with sort of chronic-ish pain of their, of their thumb or wrist? Yeah, so one of the things that she mentions is the location, and that's key. She's having pain at the base of her thumb. And already I'm zooming in on two diagnoses that are super, super common there. Uh, and one of them would be arthritis of the first carpal metacarpal joint. The metacarpal is this rod-shaped bone. It articulates with a thing about the size of a sugar cube, and it's, there's an opportunity there for wear and tear because unlike the fingers, which move like hinges, the thumb moves in a lot of different directions, and if you look at your own hand, there's a big wad of muscle that operates the thumb. So a lot of more force than the fingers and a lot more directions of motion. So the joint at the base of the thumb, the pivot joint, wears out in humans a lot. So that's on my differential diagnosis. And uh, the other thing that causes atraumatic base of the thumb pain is de Quervain syndrome, which is a tendonitis. So those two are vying for, uh, for her diagnosis right now. And what actually is the underlying pathophysiology for de Quervain's? So de Quervain's tendonitis comes from the fact that the tendons that operate our wrist and fingers get from our forearm to their destination by passing through these short little straws, these little tendon sheaths, right about at the level of your watch wristband. So if I could peel off my skin right there and look where my wrist is, uh, and I've got a picture of it I could show you, but that doesn't help much for the, for the uh, audio portion. Uh, the tendons <clears throat> pass through this section about the length of a cigarette butt uh, that's sort of like a straw, and uh, they help centralize the tendons and guide their pathway forward into the fingers. And the ones that go to the fingers are really going straight ahead 
without much deviation between the forearm and the fingers. But the ones that go to the thumb, they have to take a, a turn to get from the forearm, which is straight ahead, off to the thumb, which is off to the side. And if you think about a rope going through a little straw, the ones that go straight don't really chafe against the edge of the straw very much. But if they exit the straw and then you make them take a big turn to the left, and then you rub them back and forth a lot, there's an opportunity for the tendon to chafe against the edge of the, the straw, or the, in this case, the sheath. So some of the, 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 in this case, the first extensor compartment tendons, which are in that straw and headed off radically once they exit the straw, they chafe against the edge, and that's what sets up this tendonitis. And why you don't see it in the, uh, the regular digits, the fingers. So for, for Ms. O'Hare, is there anything... So I guess it, what I'm understanding is right now our differential is this the CMC, degenerative joint disease, versus Dequervain syndrome. For her, is there anything in her history that would point you in one direction or the other? Do, in terms of the occupational risks, do, are they sort of about the same for both diagnoses? Is there anything that, that we have right now that can point us in one direction more than the other one? No, I think we've got as much as we can milk out of the history. So we've got to shift gears and go to the physical exam. All right. That's what I was afraid of. All right. So talk, <laughs> us, so talk us through it. So, what, so for seeing the patient, she gives the history. You're still sort of with, between the two diagnoses. So where, where, how do you approach it? Where do we go from here? Because I can tell you that my exam is mostly making a thoughtful face and just kind of mashing on the fingers <laughs> and sort of looking yes. off into the middle distance. Is there something probably more specific that I should be doing to evaluate? Maybe some gentle nodding would help. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, chin stroking, uh, sure. Yes, exactly. My own, not the patient's. <laughs> Uh, no, we're really lucky for base of the thumb because we have a couple of tests that are actually useful, and they're simple uh, and easy to administer, and that's the Finkelstein's test. And to do the Finkelstein's test, you put your thumb down into your palm, and then you close the fingers around your thumb. So your thumb's kind of trapped underneath your fingers in your palm. And then uh, you tilt your wrist down toward the floor, toward the pinky finger side of your hand. And what that will do if you have de Quervain syndrome, it will light up like profoundly. Uh, it's one of the best tests we have because it's very, very sensitive uh, and specific. So uh, it's a winner test. Uh, so that test will easily sort her out uh, toward the de Quervain syndrome diagnosis. Um, the other test, which we use to find first CMC joint arthritis, is helpful but not as pathognomonic, and that's to take the thumb and press it toward the wrist and then think about grinding uh, peppers up with a mortar and a pestle. We're going to go around in a circle under that compressive force. And what we're doing inside the thumb is we're taking the, if it's arthritic, we're taking the exposed bone of the base of the metacarpal and grinding it against the exposed bone of the trapezius, the carpal bone there. And if there's no cartilage there to protect us, uh, they'll, they will feel and hurt as those uh, bones rub against each other. And that, that's a good test too, but uh, the Finkelstein is a bulletproof test. All right. So for, for Ms. O'Hare, let's say we we, we do your bulletproof examination. She actually, she's a little bit of tenderness over of palpation over the radial styloid, and she has a markedly positive Finkelstein test. So you, you jerk her hand down, and then she jumps off the table and, and is angry with you. The CMP compression test is not overtly positive, though maybe a little bit uncomfortable for her. So based on all of that, we feel pretty comfortable making a presumptive diagnosis of decorbanes for her. What <laughs> Now that we have the diagnosis, what do we do with it? What kind of recommendations can we have in, in the primary care office? What kind of things can we do to help her? Yeah, great. So it's an inflammatory condition. So one way to start would be with oral anti-inflammatory medications. And I usually just ask what they have in their medicine cabinet. I uh, don't uh, prescribe anything for them. The, I'm not convinced that the prescription medications are any safer or more effective than uh, what they've got in their medicine cabinet. So I ask what they have. And then uh, if it's ibuprofen, I'll usually ask them to take uh, three of those 200 milligram pills three times a day with food 
for maybe just a week, uh, and not a long-term course of that. Uh, and in combination with that, we can give her a thumb spike a splint. So this is a Velcro appliable brace that immobilizes the thumb and the wrist in the very distal part of the forearm. Uh, because if you think back about that tendon gliding in and out of that little stubby straw, if we stop that gliding and chafing, the inflammation can come down. And once the inflammation comes down, the tendon sort of reverts back to its normal dimensions and it glides through the straw more easily. So that's why that works sometimes and definitely would be a good first start for that. And if she tries that for a month or six weeks and really isn't feeling better, what kind of next step options might you be able to offer? Yeah, you bet. And so there's always the option of doing nothing. Uh, And uh, some patients feel like it's a minor nuisance, but they're not really ready to do anything more invasive than that. But if it really bothers her and she needs treatment, we have good success with it, a cortisone injection into that tendon sheath to decrease the inflammation of the tendon. So a uh, Dequervain's cortisone injection would be a good option for her if her pain persists and it's bothering her a lot. Can we actually go back for a second? I, I, along those lines, I feel like this is where I fall down in the office. I'll, so I'll start with conservative management with the, the splint and the NSAIDs, and then I won't give the patient any kind of time course to expect things to get better or not. So how long can we reasonably wait or should we wait before we actually start thinking about escalating treatment to the, the cortisone injection? That's a great question. And I would say that the minimum time would be two weeks. Uh, I, would, I would almost ask them to give me two weeks before we do anything more aggressive than that, including just a cortisone injection. Um, I would say after six weeks, if they're not seeing improvement, it's unlikely to get any better. If at six weeks it's not gone, but it's still better every week, I would ride it out and keep going until she sees a couple weeks in, in sequence where there's not improvement one week compared to the other. And with the cortisone injection, as we're sort of talking about um, prognosis with that, is that something that you repeat over time or do you expect resolution of symptoms? And then, so yeah, I guess sort of what, does, what options do we have moving forward from that? Yeah, so uh, you can repeat the injection. Uh, we like to wait at least three or four months between injections. So if it works like magic for a week or two, uh, it helps me because it means I've got the right diagnosis. Uh, if it were CMC joint arthritis, putting it in the sheath of the first extensor tendon shouldn't make any difference. So it's even valuable for me if it works only for a short period of time, like a, a week or two. Um, if it works for many months, and let's say next year she has the same thing because she's doing another task at her job where she's using, overusing her hand and wrist, we can do that again. Uh, but if we find that we're doing it over and over again and she wants a more long-lasting solution, there's actually a surgical procedure uh, to open up and uh, the sheath. And when you open it up, it heals with slightly bigger dimensions. And uh, you sort of widen the sheath to, to help uh, decrease the friction between the tendon and the sheath. Gotcha. So you're not surgically doing anything with the tendon itself. Like it's really difficult like to not mess with that, but to actually we just got space it, to do its thing. Correct. And it's a rare operation to have to do. Uh, so many times the, the injection works best uh, or works good enough that you don't have to go to the operative solution. Uh, one of the examples of Dequervin syndrome that I see more than any other is a pregnant woman, or actually a, a postpartum woman, uh, in the months after delivery, it's very common to have this in the mother. And uh, other people have observed, observed that, people write about that. I've never really seen a great explanation as to why it would be like that, uh, but uh, it's definitely something that's a thing. So usually that person gets an injection and by the time it wears off, they're no longer immediately postpartum and that whatever it is that caused this went away. So it's a one and done. Which is ideal. Yes. And if her Finkelstein test is negative and you are more suspecting CMC arthritis, what would you change in terms of your management? Like, how would you approach that? I think the first step could be the same. 
which would be oral anti-inflammatory medications and immobilization in a thumb spike, a splint, for a short period of time, <clears throat> maybe a week or two, uh, because arthritic joints, if we splint them too long, get stiff, and the muscles around them atrophy. Uh, and we don't have any, we aren't doing anything long-term to improve the condition and move the ball down the field. So uh, I would maybe start with the same program. Uh, and if she's not better in a couple weeks to a month, then move on to an injection, this time into the first CMC joint. Uh, so Miss O'Hare returns to your office several months later. Her thumb and wrist pain have completely resolved. She's composed a sonnet about how excellent a doctor you are, which she shares with you. It's awful. Unfortunately, Miss <laughs> O'Hare has a new concern. She reports that her ring finger on her right hand keeps getting stuck in the flex position after making a fist. The finger may eventually pop up, but more commonly, she has to manually unstick the finger with her left hand. She denies any injuries. Shockingly, acetaminophen has not helped. <laughs> uh, so for this kind of condition, what, what's going on with the anatomy? Why is she having these stuck fingers? Yeah, so this one, the diagnosis is done. We've made the diagnosis. There's only one thing in life that can cause what she's describing, and that's called a trigger finger. And I don't know why it would be called a trigger finger, uh, because I don't use my ring finger to pull the trigger on a gun if I'm <laughs> using a gun. And uh, I don't use my thumb or my pinky, and any of those fingers can have this condition. So uh, I don't know where the name comes from. But uh, what's happening there is the flexor tendon, the tendon that flexes the finger into the palm, it also runs in a, not so much a sheath, but a little hoop. And if you think about the eyelets on a fishing line that keep the fishing line close to the fishing rod, the tendon passes through those hoops in our, underneath our skin. And the very first one, which is called the A1 pulley, which stands for the an, first annular pulley, uh, it accepts the tendon approaching it from a number of different directions and angles. So again, it's a chafing problem. Uh, the second pulley has already gotten the tendon straightened out by the first pulley, and every pulley down the line has gotten it even more straightened out. So the one that gets the most action is the first pulley because the tendon's approaching it from different angles and directions. So there's an opportunity for chafing against the rim of that. We call them pulleys. They have nothing to do with pulleys. They're really little right. croquet hoops <laughs> or something. You know, yeah. I don't know where these names come from. Uh, but anyway, they're called pulleys, and chafing against the pulley can cause a nodular tendonitis on the flexor tendon. So imagine the tendon has a bulbous little, uh, you know, pea-sized bump on it, and that gets hung up in the pulley. So it slides through when you flex your finger, but it's very hard to slide through the other direction when you try to straighten your finger. You can pull hard enough to pull it through, and it usually pulls through the big old clunk, uh, and that's what triggering is uh, in the trigger finger. That makes a lot of sense. And I think all of our listeners have your book by now, but it has some really great pictures. Yeah, of exactly I wish I could share what you're the pictures. Describing. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that makes so much sense because I never really understood why bracing worked, um, you know, why that would help. And, and that makes a lot of sense that there is this inflammatory swelling and if we can allow that to calm down. Yeah. And the neat thing about bracing is you can use a little brace that just immobilizes the distal interphalangeal joint way out toward the tip of the finger. And just by decreasing the excursion of the tendon that much, by mobilizing that one joint, you can keep that nodule from rubbing against the place where it's been rubbing, and the swelling of the nodule can go down. So bracing is, is certainly an option, and it doesn't have to be the whole hand, wrist, arm, shoulder, you know, body cast type brace. Just a little guy on the end of the finger does the job. 
I was definitely recommending full finger. Oh, so for sure. Very, very helpful. Because <laughs> I'm not quite sure in, in terms of where, where my patients actually be able to find these braces. Do you t- are you able to find these typically pharmacies or these things uh, that you have in the office or how? You no, know, that's a good point because in our office, I just wander over to our hand provider <laughs> and I open the drawer when no one's looking and just grab one. Right. Uh, and uh, there, it would be harder for you all to get them. Uh, so you could use, I guess, a, uh, the old uh, a popsicle stick tape combo, but you know, this probably is going to need to be on for weeks and that you can't wash your hands with that. Uh, so it's, I, it might be more difficult for you guys to come up with a splint that would be easy to comply with. Gotcha. And before we, and I think we're touching on the treatment option before we get there, it sounds like there's no other special physical examination features. Like sometimes I will just sort of make the patient's finger pop just to yeah. <laughs> to prove to myself that it's actually there. No, is there anything should. else that we should be doing? To, is there anything else in the examination that is super suggestive or helpful for us here? Only one thing, and that is if you palpate in the palm a centimeter or two proximal to the metacarpal phalangeal joint, the little crease where the finger attaches the hand, go one centimeter or two proximal and press hard there. A lot of times you can feel that pea-sized nodule on the tendon. And as they wiggle their finger, you'll feel it glide back and forth on the tendon. So things are close enough to the skin that you can actually feel that sometimes. And having finding that tender nodule is just another physical exam uh, finding that supports that diagnosis. But for sure, the, the winner is the, the triggering, especially I do what you do. I ask them to reproduce the triggering so I can convince myself that this really is, is what's happening. And once you see it once, you'll never forget it. I mean, it's very, very profound. Yeah, it's a satisfying diagnosis because it is so easy sometimes. Yes. For, I guess the same questions for the splinting that we sort of talked about before with, um, with the decor veins, like how, how long is long enough and, and when should they be wearing the splint? Is it all day, all night? And sort of, I guess... I, again, where I fall down, I think, is counseling around splinting. I'm like, yeah, just get yourself a splint at the pharmacy, and we'll see you in three months, which is probably not satisfying <laughs> for anyone. So what's a better way to do that? So this splint, you probably have to wear full-time. Uh, it's funny because patients tend to complain most about triggering in the morning when they first get up. And I think that people sleep with their, fin- their fists clenched. And I don't know, maybe, maybe if your hands get swollen at night or something, I don't know why they would be more prone to this. But it's definitely observed consistently that the morning – is the time when triggering is the worst. Uh, so I would wear it at night for that reason. And then during the day, that's when we're using our hand and rubbing that tendon against the edge of the sheath. So during the day too. So I would wear it day and night. And remember, I'm just immobilizing the distal part. So it isn't a huge encumbrance. Uh, and I would ask a minimum of two weeks. And if they're hot to trot at two weeks and claim that they're not having any improvement, uh, we could go to the next step. Uh, and maybe a maximum of six weeks. At six weeks, if they're not getting better, they can either live with it or go to the next step to get it treated. All right. And I, and I think we're there. So what does what the next step look like? Is it cortisone for everything or do we have any other options for this patient? I think cortisone is the best option. This is a place where cortisone really shines. A, a cortisone shot here works so effectively. We hardly ever get to do the fun little surgical <laughs> procedure that we do to take care of trigger finger, which is also really fun and satisfying. But cortisone injections work really well here. And I'm probably never going to do these in the office, but I assume it's a smaller dose than would be like for a knee or a head. Yes, a half cc, which for most cortisone preparations is 20 milligrams okay. uh, of the corticosteroid, uh, and then another half cc of lidocaine. Okay. And you mentioned the surgery being fun, so I'll never, I'll never be doing that either. But <laughs> for, for you, in terms of patients are often like, what does the surgery entail? And if I were doing some counseling, so what does surgery look like? Should we actually get to that point? Yeah, and it's different from what you might intuit. Uh, the way I've described it, the troublemaker is this nodule on the flexor tendon. So it would be tempting to go in with your surgical knife and whittle that down so that the tendon no longer has that bulbous nodule. And you can do that for sure. But what 
is a problem is that the connective tissue in the tendon would be injured badly enough by that, that the rupture rate is really high if you treat it that way. So instead of doing that, we go to the other side of the equation and cut the pulley, the, the, that hoop that the tendon is getting irritated through. And when we cut it, we let it just stay cut and a little bridge of blood probably connects the two ends of that pulley or that hoop. And effectively, we've increased the volume or the size of that hoop. And by increasing its diameter, we lessen the chafing against the hoop. And I always wonder why then the second one wouldn't develop, the second uh, hoop wouldn't develop this because it not, isn't getting the guidance it used to get. But uh, I've never ever seen and never really read much about the second pulley causing triggering. So once you get the first one uh, enlarged, it tends to take care of the problem. And when people have the first round of cortisone shots and it usually fixes the problem, is is it frequent that they will have a recurrence? Or not frequent, certainly not unheard of, but yeah, not frequent. But not okay. So usually they're just the one and done deal. That. Yeah, excellent. This episode is brought to you by Provider Solutions and Development. They are expert recruitment advisors helping physicians to navigate their next career move. You know, there's plenty of options when it comes to your career in medicine, but just like every patient is different, each physician forms their own personal definition of success. Provider Solutions and Development doesn't bring one answer for all. They are recruitment experts that are going to focus on who you are before helping you find where you're meant to be because you deserve a job search partner who gets to know you and then starts to look for your next role. Their team wants to help you find where you're meant to be. And like I said, they're going to learn what matters most to you first before they find you the job that's going to fit your next career move. So start the conversation today with Provider Solutions and Development at info.psdconnect.org forward slash curbsiders. That's info.psdconnect.org forward slash curbsiders. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. And Curbsiders, you know I'm a fan of Indeed because recently I used it and I had a great experience. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed is a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. With their instant match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, and that's according to Indeed data in the U.S. At the Curbsiders, we had a great hiring experience with Indeed because we got so many high-quality applicants. The platform was easy to use, easy to post the job, and as they say, we instantly attracted high-quality candidates. So sign up for Indeed now and get a $75 credit towards your first sponsored job, plus earn up to $500 in sponsored job credits with Indeed's virtual interviews. Visit Indeed.com slash internal medicine to learn more. Claim your credits at Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right. She gets the trigger finger. She eventually gets a cortisone injection, Ms. O'Hare, and it works wonders, and she is elated. She has written a haiku about the experience. It is also awful. Um, and as a result, Ms. O'Hare's bosses at the soft pretzel factory are moving her to the front desk to spare her more hand pain. The job involves, involves a great deal of typing and data entry. She types and she types and she types some more. And over the next few months, she develops numbness and pins and needles in the fingers of her right hand, specifically in the thumb, the pointer, and the middle finger. The pain is especially bothersome at night. She says that sometimes she tries to hang her arm off the side of the bed just to kind of alleviate the pain, though it doesn't really help all that much. She also feels like she's gotten a little bit clumsier with her right hand, and as a reminder, she is right-hand dominant. 
And I, I think one of the reasons why, why we save this complication for the end here is because I think all primary care doctors, as soon as someone says they have any kind of hand or wrist pain, makes the diagnosis for carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> and they're right, maybe about half the time. But I, I think that, you know, I think some of the features are probably would prompt us to think about that. So I, I wonder, for this patient, are there any historical features that jump out? And are we headed in the right direction if we think this might be carpal tunnel syndrome? Yeah, we're definitely headed the right direction. And she's made it easy for us because she's complaining not of pain, but of numbness and tingling. So we know this is a neurologic problem or condition. And she's telling us it's in the median nerve distribution, like textbook, uh, thumb, index, middle finger. If we asked her some more, she'd probably even say, even the radial side of my ring finger. Uh, <laughs> which she's exactly yeah. textbook. <laughs> uh, so she's helping us. She's leading us right down the middle of the fairway on this one. And um, what doesn't make sense, and we see sometimes, is the first two conditions she had, people calling that carpal tunnel. So it is true that it's tempting to bunch all hand and wrist problems into being carpal tunnel. And typically, carpal tunnel isn't as much pain as it is numbness and tingling. So someone who has pain only and no numbness and tingling, in my book, doesn't have carpal tunnel. I suppose there are rare instances where that might happen. But I'm looking for numbness and tingling, the pins and needle feeling that she's describing. That's a classic thing. So now I know I'm in the nerve bucket, and I know that it's either a peripheral nerve entrapment and there are a couple locations along the length of the nerve where that can happen, or it may be something from the cervical spine. Uh, and so now the next task is, okay, we've got to figure out where along the pathway of the nerve, all the way starting in the spinal cord and ending at the tip of her fingers, where is this nerve impingement happening? The book, not that we, we shouldn't keep reading the book. Well, I'm going to keep reading the book out. The book is so good, <laughs> but I also specifically the explanation of the pathophysiology is why this is more sort of inclined to happen, I, I thought was fascinating. I, I sort of changed the way I thought about that. Would you mind sort of talking us through why the, the median nerve is specifically prone to this condition and sort of what, what factors have to be in play for carpal tunnel to develop? Yes, it, it's, it, I'll, try, I'll do my best because it's hard for me to explain that even with drawings and visual aids, but uh, let, let me do what I can. Uh, the thing that really intrigued me when I started learning about this is that it turns out that this nerve malfunction that happens with uh, peripheral nerve uh, compression is really a vascular phenomenon. And uh, the nerves are running these ATP-driven membrane pumps to maintain the membrane potential you need for an action potential. And that's very expensive. You have to run a lot of energy through those pumps 24-7. And if you do anything to induce ischemia, then it doesn't take long for those pumps to slowly motor down to nothing. And then you lose the action potential because you lose your membrane potential. So uh, if you just, you know, press your thumb deep into your palm and pull it off, you'll see that it blanches for a second and then it pinks up. And that's just because the pressure of your thumb is exceeding capillary filling pressure. So you're creating, if you did it long enough, you could actually cause skin necrosis from that. Let's know? not do that, though. Let's not. We won't do that today. Uh, but the principle is the same. Pressure can cause ischemia. Uh, and what happens in the carpal tunnel is the, carpal, or the median nerve is in there in a place that does not have the uh, flexibility to accommodate any swelling. So it's got a bony firm floor, this tunnel. It's got two bony firm walls. And then the roof is this transverse carpal ligament, which is thick and fibrous and unyielding and not flexible. So it's in a physical tunnel. And if anything in that tunnel uh, creates pressure, uh, the flexor tendons don't mind it because they are very resistant to, to pressure and ischemia. But the nerve malfunctions because the pressure physically stops flow of blood to the axon. And without blood, it can't run the transmembrane pumps. And without that, there's no membrane potential. Without a potential, there's not an action potential or conduction. 
uh, the way we, we expect it. So you start losing sensation, uh, which is the numbness that she's experiencing. And how on exam do you try to differentiate, you know, actually carpal tunnel versus a cervical radiculopathy? It's hard to do on exam. We have some tests, and they're not great, honestly. Uh, there's the one where you tap on the palmar surface of the wrist, so you're tapping right over the carpal tunnel. And these membranes, if they're not really getting a good blood supply and the transmembrane pumps aren't doing their job very well, it's very easy with just physical tapping to depolarize the membrane and cause that shooting into the fingers. Uh, so that's Tennell's sign. Uh, there's also Phelan's test where you put your hands, the backs of your hands against each other with your elbows up in the winged position, right and left. And what you're doing there, if you imagine the carpal tunnel, if you take a piece of paper and just roll it into a cylinder, uh, and then you take that cylinder and kink it in the middle, that compromises the dimensions of the tunnel. And that's what we're doing when we cock our wrists down like that in Phelan's test. If you hold it for 30 seconds or a minute and you recreate or worsen the numbness in the median nerve distribution, that's a positive test for carpal tunnel. And it's really the same thing that happens ergonomically when you use a mouse or a keyboard and your wrist is either flexed too much or extended too much. You're kinking that tunnel in one direction or the other and compromising its dimensions and increasing pressure on the median nerve. And all the ergonomic modifications that people do to their workspace are to try to keep their wrists straight. And the Velcro wrist brace that we use for treatment is trying to keep your wrist straight. Uh, if you keep the wrist straight, then the tunnel's as open as it can be, and it takes pressure off the nerve. I think we saw a lot of work-from-home COVID cases of carpal tunnel. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I would say the feeling, you know, having someone hold it there for a minute feels like a long time. It does feel like a long time. Yeah. I usually say, okay, a minute's up, and it's actually been like 18 seconds. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How I feel like I see presumptive diagnoses, again, in internal medicine offices specifically, of bilateral carpal tunnel, which just feels weird to me. Can you talk to me a little bit about, like, how common is that, and is that should that prompt us to think about cervical radiculopathy, or is there any way to kind of help us differentiate those things? Yeah, I think it, it definitely exists. I don't think it's common to have bilateral disease. Um, let's say that uh, you need to break up your driveway and repave it, and you go out and rent a jackhammer and spend the Saturday afternoon busting up that concrete I wouldn't be surprised if you had bilateral carpal tunnel sure. from just the swelling of the jackhammer pounding into your palms. Uh, so I guess there are instances where you almost kind of expect bilateral disease, but, uh, but that's, that's unusual. Um, there are a lot of things we have to keep in mind when we look at compression neuropathies and try to figure out where they're coming from. Uh, one is, is back to location. We know that she's got the location of the median nerve because it's her thumb, her index, and her middle finger. But if it goes from there all the way up her arm to her shoulder, that's not typical of carpal tunnel. And typically, carpal tunnel syndromes are isolated to the palm, the hand, and the fingers and not proximal to the wrist. Uh, and so if their symptoms are proximal to the wrist, it makes me wonder, am I really on the right track? Because uh, the more proximal nerve impingement lesions like a cervical radiculopathy, uh, the C6 distribution is the index finger and the thumb, which would, could we could certainly apply here. Uh, and uh, that would be more, you know, a longer track of symptoms uh, down the arm, by the elbow, shoulder, et cetera. Gotcha. And anything else in exam, like DNR wasting, I feel like it's brought up sometimes. Like, is there anything else that we should mm -hmm. be looking for specifically that would, that would help us out here and nail the diagnosis? Yeah, the thenar wasting, uh, especially in a younger person, it's something that you can see in older people as part of aging. But in a younger person, if you see thenar wasting, it definitely indicates a chronic denervation of the thenar muscles. 
And uh, that you see with medial nerve dysfunction, but only if it's been there a long time. And the most important thing about finding it is that that, again, tells us this is long-term and chronic, and probably a lot of the symptoms that are bothering our patient may not be reversible. So uh, a lot of times we still treat them, and we treat them to sort of arrest the progression, but we have to explain to them that in this case, it's not realistic to have our goal be to eliminate symptoms. Might happen, not likely. So just to make sure expectations match results, uh, it takes a couple extra minutes of explanation in that patient. And you mentioned uh, the wrist splints to kind of keep the wrist straight to avoid kinking. Are there other conservative treatments that you recommend? And with the wrist splints, how do you counsel patients on how to use those? Yeah, the wrist splints work remarkably well. Uh, And the neat thing about the wrist splints is really start by just using them at night. And so they're not nearly as cumbersome as if you had to wear it night and day. Uh, The reason we use them at night is people often sleep with their wrists bent, uh, just unconsciously. That's how they prefer to sleep. And so all night long, the nerve is getting compressed. And uh, it's, if you just use it at night and even just for a couple of weeks, that can be all you need. So it's a really safe, simple, you can buy them at the pharmacy. You don't have to have a medical supply company set you up with these. I was just going to ask are the like $15 ones online. Just as good as the $300 ones that (laughs) we sell in our office. (laughs) Wonderful. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. Great. And then in terms of the role of cortisone, I feel like I'm sensing a pattern here. Um, Yeah. yeah, When when do you consider that? And is there, does that, like other things that help you sort of prognosticate how patients are going to do in terms of the response to that? Yeah. So I favor a cortisone injection, maybe more than a lot of providers in orthopedics for carpal tunnel. And I like it because it is diagnostic and therapeutic uh, when you use it. So in other words, it's not always textbook like this case where the distribution is exactly the right fingers and it's numbness and tingling and pins and needles. It can be a little, the waters can be a little more muddy than that. So if uh, I'm at a point where I'm not getting anywhere with conservative management, meaning the wrist splint at night, oral anti-inflammatory medications, Uh, and I want to try a cortisone injection, and I do the cortisone injection, and I get no relief, then that's the patient where I really am wondering, am I on the right track? Am I getting fooled, and this is some other compression neuropathy elsewhere along the path of the nerve? That, for me, is the time to send for EMGs. Um, If I do the cortisone injection into the carpal tunnel, and the pain is gone, and it's gone for a week or a month or six months or forever, Number one, it confirms, okay, this I am on the right track. This is carpal tunnel syndrome because a shot of cortisone in the carpal tunnel isn't going to touch a cervical radiculopathy. There won't, won't improve it at all. Uh, it also means that if they come back and say, wow, doc, that was great for X number of weeks, but now it's back, the fact that it went away before it came back tells me that it's reversible. And the, the only patients who don't get better with carpal tunnel surgery are people who don't have carpal tunnel or people who have it, but it's so chronic and severe that it's not reversible. So if they got relief and it comes back at some point, uh, that's a good patient uh, that, that tells me I'm going to be successful with the carpal tunnel release surgery. So in, in this patient with pretty classic carpal tunnel symptoms, and if she doesn't respond to conservative treatments or the, the steroid injections and she's thinking about surgery, do you always have an EMG before surgery? Is that required? I don't. And I okay. think that I'm different from most providers that way. If, and we have to backtrack a little bit because uh, we were talking about not responding to conservative therapy. Uh, the 
The patient that I would recommend surgery is one who did respond to a cortisone shot, but only but temporarily. Briefly, yeah. So you're right. It wasn't, didn't get rid of it, but it improved it for a finite amount of time. And that predictor, is, to me, is more powerful than EMGs, that they have carpal tunnel syndrome and that they'll get better with a carpal tunnel release. Okay. And how, what does that surgery look like? It's a really simple surgery. So we make a cut in the palm, and we can use either the lifeline or the love line, the two lines in our palm. And uh, we open the skin that way. And we like to put the incision in those lines because when it heals, it's almost imperceivable that you made an incision there. And right underneath that is some palmer fat, and you dissect through that. And right underneath that is the transverse carpal ligament. And it's unmistakable because it's the only thing under there where the fibers go transversely, east to west. All the, everything else, the tendons, the nerves, the important stuff, the arteries, everything else is going longitudinal, parallel to the long axis of the forearm. So when you see the transverse fibers, you know you're at the transverse carpal ligament. And we just divide that cautiously because right underneath it is the median nerve. And once it's divided, we leave it alone. The two edges boink apart from each other because they're under tension. And then we close the skin over it. Very important not to close the transverse carpal ligament or you reestablish a tight carpal tunnel. Uh, so by leaving it alone like that, sort of like the first annular pulley that we released for trigger finger, there's a gap between those two stumps of the transverse carpal ligament that immediately fills in with blood. And the blood sort of hardens into scar tissue connecting the two. So just like with the trigger finger release, we're basically increasing the volume of the carpal tunnel, so much so that it can accommodate whatever the swelling was or the increased pressure that caused the carpal tunnel in the first place. No, it sounds like I could do it in the office. That's you could. You could yeah. even do it right here on this table. <laughs> See those transverse fibers? You got this. Yes, yes. <laughs> There's our emergency. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. All attempted surgery. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, I'll keep my phone on. Listeners yes. at home, there's going to be a YouTube video of us trying this right here uh, on Chris Chu's wrist. It'll be Chris great. Is ready. <laughs> that's right. We got the wrist splint already. All right. Well, that, this was tremendous, extraordinarily helpful as always. But before we let you go, um, would you mind sort of recapping your main take-home points for the listeners? What would you absolutely like them to walk away from this with? Yeah, boy, Finkelstein's test is probably the number one winner. Uh, it's easy, doesn't require any expense or equipment, and it's super sensitive and specific. Uh, the other concept is that uh, to really have carpal tunnel syndrome, you have to have neurologic symptoms, numbness, tingling, and in the median nerve distribution. Uh, wrist pain, uh, numbness and tingling on the dorsum of the hand, numbness and tingling in the ulnar distribution, the ring finger and this pinky finger, or a glove of numbness over your whole hand, which is more uh, you know, like neuropathy. Uh, those things aren't likely to be carpal tunnel. Uh, so probably not wise to go and operate on those using the carpal tunnel operation. Right, so that's that's not the patient I will start on then. That's fair. Right, right. Um, <laughs> right. And then do you, is there anything that you'd like to plug uh, other than your excellent book? This is Practical Office Orthopedics as a reminder to our listeners. And we'll have a link in the show notes as well. But anything else that you'd like to plug? Uh, boy, I, you know, that's good. That works. Uh, the book and uh, that'll work. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> I was Get. trying to avoid it. <laughs> I was hoping we were going to make a test. I was just about to move on. Get you your a long time. <laughs> Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We are committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. 
A special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Dr. Paul Williams, and to our whole team. This episode was produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media, and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoiblein. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>